0: Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities. We'll have an interesting podcast today about a little-known figure in Kentucky history, and I'll introduce our guest in just a moment. But first, let me tell uh, you about uh, a terrific lineup of experts, uh, not only including our guest today, but uh, a number of other professionals, uh, scholars, experts in our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau. Uh, each year, we put together a roster of of scholars, professionals, musicians, writers, poets. Uh, we even have a, a beekeeper who will come to your group and talk to you about how important bees are to our environment and to our Kentucky agriculture. Uh, our Speakers Bureau has uh, so many, many history stories, uh, stories we all need to hear again and sometimes hear those stories for the first time. There are stories on uh, women's history in the state of Kentucky, Black history, and Black history not just during Black History Month, but all year long. Uh, The history of journalism in the Commonwealth, the history of Appalachian language, and um, something that, uh, again, that all Kentuckians love, uh, mountain music. Uh, You can have uh, Michael Jonathan, the the uh, star of the the Wood Song's old time radio hour, come and sit right in your living room or your church group or your civic group and pluck his uh, guitar and uh, banjo for you. He'll do that. That's Michael Jonathan. He's available. We have uh, music from uh, the Moorhead school of traditional music, a speaker that comes from there. So there's just such a great variety of programs, all listed on our kyhumanities.org website. Uh, Today, um, our guest is Randolph Paul Runyon. He's an author and professor emeritus from Miami University of Ohio, but he now lives in Paris, Kentucky. He's uh, left the classroom and uh, is joining us, and we appreciate that very much. Uh, Dr. Runyon, uh, it's certainly an honor to have you with us and have you uh, back in Kentucky. You were telling me that you were Uh, Born and raised, or at least born, a Kentuckian, and spent a long time away here teaching history. And today you're going to tell us the story of Elisha Green.
1: Yes, I am. Uh, Elisha Green has been called the Rosa Parks of the 19th century, though there were many differences between the two stories. But Elisha Green, who was born in 1818 and lived until 1893, uh, was born enslaved in Bourbon County and at the age of 10 uh, was brought by his owner family to Mason County. And he spent the rest of his life uh, in Maysville or nearby. He uh, purchased his own freedom uh, in uh, 1858 by uh, earning money on the side and uh, as a preacher. Uh, he he got the calling and i interpret his personal mythology as actually an interesting difference between the two similarly named hebrew prophets elijah and elisha he was elisha who in the old testament was the successor the appointed successor to elijah and the baptist preacher william warder who was a white man who was the husband of his second owner a woman, Elizabeth uh, Dobbins Warder. Uh, William Warder uh, was a role model for him, believe it or not, uh, in Mayslick, in Mason County, Kentucky at the Baptist church there. And he uh, rivaled with him uh, to see in the course of his life if he couldn't break Warder's record of the number of people baptized. <laughs> And when he became a when uh, Green became a Baptist preacher in 1845 in Maysville, uh, he began baptizing in the frigid February waters of the Ohio River at the foot of Wall Street. I'm not sure why he picked that time of year to do it. But the papers every year would say, well, he baptized 70 more or eight more, depending. Uh, And uh, so, in in fact, he perhaps broke Warder's record, but he saw. Just to dwell for a moment, I won't stay too long in this personal mythology, Uh, but he saw, I believe, Warder as Elijah and himself as Elisha, as his name, in fact, by coincidence was, uh, to carry on and to uh, actually improve upon uh, the saving record, the baptizing record of his predecessor. In the case of Elijah and Elisha, they were not doing any baptizing back then but they were doing miracles. Uh, so not that Elisha Green did miracles, but that was the context. Anyway, Elisha Green uh, was quite uh, popular in Maysville and also in Paris. 10 years after he began his ministry at Bethel Baptist Church in Maysville, which was dependent at first on the Mark Street, uh, uh, White Baptist Church, Southern Baptist Church, he uh, began a similar church in Paris, Kentucky, uh, which was under the thumb of the white First Baptist Church in Paris, and he wrested it away. He said that that the, the black church in Paris was the slave of the white church. And he broke that, he, he won its freedom by establishing it as an independent entity And within three years, he began doing that in 1855. and 1858, he had helped construct a building that is still there on 8th Street in Paris. I walk by it every day, Uh, First Baptist Church. There's another First Baptist Church. They both have the same name. That's the White Church. He would travel by stagecoach in the beginning, beginning in 1855 on alternate weekends between Maysville and Paris. And when the train came in around 1872, uh, he took the train. And what made him comparable to Rosa Parks, who, as you know, was arrested uh, in Montgomery, Alabama in in the mid 1950s for uh, sitting in a seat that was supposed to be reserved for white people. He uh, was taking the train as he did every week or so between Maysville and Paris. And when he arrived at Millersburg, which is the stop just before Paris, as you're going south down the Kentucky Central Railway, a group of some 40 young women at Millersburg Female College uh, with their college president and their uh, music professor, who also taught gym or calisthenics, as they called it then, uh, got on the train at Millersburg And George Gould, the president of the college, who was from North Carolina and a flagrant racist, and who designed his school to be a more Southern school than its Kentucky address would indicate, Uh, not that Kentucky wasn't somewhat Southern at that time, uh, wanted Green to leave his seat in that car so that he could give it to one of his students or two of his students. He didn't ask him nicely. He grabbed him by the shoulder and tried to pull him out of the seat. Green later said if he had asked him nicely, he would have, of course, obliged. But he wasn't going to be treated like a dog, as he said. He said, I bought this ticket in Maysville, and I intend to use it. Of course, it was only eight more minutes until you get to Paris, eight more miles to you get to Paris. But the principle of the thing is, is what's at stake. Gould then called upon his calisthenics professor to try to help him pull Green out of the seat. And uh, Bristow was the name of the calisthenics and music professor. And he beat Green on the head with his brass bound suitcase, drawing blood. And Gould held him down while he did that. Then the conductor came up and said, If you. Guys, don't stop beating up on that paying passenger. I'm going to throw you off the train. So they stopped. When they got to Paris, uh, a friend of Gould's, who was uh, from Maysville and who happened to be seated in the back of the car and saw the whole thing and who had earlier offered his seat, and that was his seatmate, to Gould, so that they wouldn't have to take a seat away from Green. In other words, there were other seats in the train. Gould just wanted that seat, and he wanted to pull a racist stunt. Uh, He uh, advised Green when they got off the train at Paris, maybe he ought to take this to court. And Green was already thinking along those lines, and he did. And he brought a civil suit against Green and Bristow that was delayed by Green and Bristow as much as they could, but did come up. This was, by the way, I didn't give the date, June 8th, 1883. In March of 1884, the suit was heard in the Bourbon uh, County Courthouse, and lo and behold, they both had good lawyers, both parties had, Green won. He didn't get the damages he sought, but he won won a, a victory of honor, and Bristow, and Gould were compelled to pay court costs, which were considerable, because considering that inflation has been but you know, 3,000% since then, that would have been about $800 today. Uh, this contributed to Gould's downfall as the president of Billersburg Female College. He had had earlier problems. He had been accused of drunkenness uh, he certainly had committed adultery. He was married and had children. Uh, he and his wife did not get along. Uh, there is. I like to do. I like to tell the human side of the story, and I like to dig behind the obvious story. And I so what I do in the book, uh, besides speaking mainly about Green, his life before and after, which was honorable, heroic, and interesting, uh, I I talk about Gould's problems. Uh, what led to his resigning the following year from the presidency of the college, trying to start a uh, to to fill a similar position in New Mexico, which was a territory at that time, uh, taking Bristow with him, and then when then uh, Gould's uh, wife brought church uh, law charges against him in the Southern Methodist Church in the fall of '84, uh, and uh, he was defrocked. And he lost his job in New Mexico, and then he went on to become uh, open his own church. Since he was obviously such a pious and holy individual, uh, he opened it in an opera house in New Mexico, and that flourished for a year. And then he went into the newspaper business, and I, I won't get into it here. But I, I get into Bristow's life before and after. But as but 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 Green is of course the the most important topic. Uh, and uh, Green had an amazing amount of freedom to travel while still a slave. Uh, he uh, was passed from one member of the family to another, the Dobbins family. Uh, he spent most of his time in Maysville in the upper floor of, of a commission house, which I believe was located on Lower Market Street.
0: And what is a commission house, uh, Dr. Onion?
1: A commission house is uh, a mercantile business in which farmers uh, bring their produce uh, to the house, and then it's sold for them. Mm-hmm. And they're right on the river, so it goes both up and down river, and is sold. and And, and uh, this was uh, John Quarterdobbins, uh, who who was the merchant, and he did so well that he he became wealthy. Uh, he uh built a beautiful house in the shape of an octagon that's still here in well I'm, I when I say here I don't mean terrace, but in Maysville mm-hmm. where I
0: still think I live
1: uh, uh and in that house uh built in 1854 uh green uh was then instead of living as a had until then in in the upper floor of of the of the mercantile building in downtown lived in the house or in a slave quarters behind it and there the eight-year-old daughter of john porter dobbin's taught him how to how to write he knew how to read because he had enough spare time in the upper floor of the mercantile house on market street in Baysville to read the bible twice through and that's how he learned how to read uh, but Isn't
0: that was that a common practice at the time that uh, a lot of um, now was he was he uh, freed at that time? No, no, he was still no. a slave. He, he technically belonged
1: to Elizabeth Dobbins Warder, uh, the wife of the preacher. uh But she, but John Porter Dobbins was her son, and uh so he helped out. He learned how to count and do math because he had to weigh produce. So he was
0: mostly there. working there at the commission house. Mostly
1: working at the commission house. Uh-huh. Otherwise- Wasn't
0: it an, a practice though of, um, of both uh, freed and, and still enslaved uh, that they uh, did learn from the Bible, uh, reading uh, scripture and, and reciting it back? Uh, I
1: don't know specifically, but I imagine, uh, mm-hmm. for example, uh, I, wrote an earlier book on a slave named Lewis Hayden, who says, who was in Lexington in the 1830s, 1840s, and and he recounted that he picked up newspapers in the street and would learn to read from them. So in his case, it wasn't the Bible. And Mm -hmm. the Bible was special for uh, Green, because Green was always a very devout person, Mm -hmm. his interest. So uh, whatever scrap of printed material you could find, Mm -hmm. Uh, at, at, at one point, uh, John Porter Dobbins was looking for green, who was up on the top floor and he said, and he found him and said, what the hell were you doing up there? Uh, and he said, well, I was just reading, (laughs) but for years that went on. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. When did he, when was he able to leave the, um, the ownership of, um, of the Dobbins uh, family And uh, this incident on the train occurred in the 1870s, I believe you said. 1883. 1883, Uh, uh, long after the Civil War. So by that time, uh, had he been given his emancipation?
1: He had earned his emancipation by purchasing it through his mother, November 28, 1856, after having done the same first for his sister Harriet in 1853. So he sacrificed his own freedom for his sister. But he earned money uh, as a preacher, even though he was a slave. But but he, he had enough free time. He also earned money on the side from Dobbins. Uh, in addition to his duties, once his workday was over, uh he caught he caught rats, for example. Uh and he got 25 cents a, a rat. And uh, and on another occasion, uh, Dobbins had purchased a huge amount of bacon, and the bacon dripped grease all over the floor. And he was uh, Green was uh, instructed to put sawdust on the floor to soak up the grease. And then Green got the idea. You know what? I could get the grease out of this sawdust, and he did by putting it in a nail keg and putting that over a, a, a kettle that that had steam. And I'm not sure how that works, but somehow. He got enough grease that he sold it to a candle maker in Maysville. Uh, and with the money from the candle maker, he bought himself a set of silver spoons.
0: I hesitate to ask what he did with the rats or what someone else did with the
1: rats. Oh, well, they were destroyed. I don't think he ate them. I don't think anyone else did.
0: Uh, just caught them.
1: Just caught them. And and destroyed them. Okay. Destroyed them so that they were no longer
0: because there were a lot of grain in
1: yeah bacon and other food in the wild house
0: in your uh research uh, uh Dr Runyon how common was it for for the enslaved um we're, we're beginning to learn more about the daily life of of the enslaved uh th- there's a new history on and much conversation about either the romanticization of the slave life or not, uh, that it was cruel and harsh, or that they were happy and well-fed and taken care of. That, that that's debate is for another day. How common was it in your research have you found uh, in this case where there are other enslaved much like Elijah Green that had, it sounds like, a substantial, uh, a good job, uh, were were being well taken care of, uh, self-educated, but then were being educated by a family member. Um, And were there a large number of African-Americans in that community?
1: There were in Mason County. They were mainly engaged in agricultural work. Uh, uh, throughout the South, I have found uh, several instances of uh, slaves who were hired out to work for someone else, often in a factory, and earned extra money on the side. Sometimes when they were hired out, uh, not only did their owner get rent payment for them, but then they were able to share the earnings with, with the owner. Uh, some worked in mines, uh, some worked uh, in Well, uh, there were other preachers, for example, besides Green, in Kentucky, who had a uh, freedom to travel on the train or, or the stagecoach to other cities within the state in order to preach at churches. Uh, and that's what Green had. But he wasn't hmm. the only one.
0: I, I came across a couple of others. So by uh, 1883, he was not relegated to a segregated car, obviously.
1: That's right. There, yeah. there was. It's amazing. I was amazed. Uh, uh, that didn't come until 1893. Uh, <laughs> really, yeah. Uh, it, at that time, in 1883 and the 1870s, uh, there was there was complete freedom. Uh, there were cases, uh, anecdotes told in the uh, Paris, Kentucky newspapers, for example, about a conversation held with uh, slaves or, or or black people that weren't necessarily slaves. Uh, Uh, people sitting next to them, uh, or at least in the same car, uh, and also in the stagecoach. Uh, Green, uh, as I said before, the the railroad finally was completed from Maysville to Paris and then to Lexington around 1872. Prior to that, since 1855, was taking the stagecoach. And uh, he talks about some conversations he had with white people in the stagecoach. And the stagecoach was too small to segregate. Uh, uh, and, uh, however, it was a little more dangerous for the, for the slave because, uh, there was no conductor to keep order. The driver, but the driver's busy. Uh, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he, he, uh, just after he bought his freedom. So, and that was, as I said, in 1856, he, the stagecoach coming from, uh, Lexington to, well, Paris to Blue Licks, which he, uh, uh, often would, he would stop for lunch or supper there at the big hotel. Uh, there was a drunk, oh, the uh, river uh, was, was flooded, so they had, or uh, the bridge broke down uh, on the North Fork uh, River there, uh, the Licking River, so the coach had to, people had to get out of the coach and ford uh, uh, the stream and then help push the coach up the hill
0: uh,
1: and at that time there was a uh, a, a, a drunk, uh, a white man uh, who began uh, grabbing Green and Green said, don't touch me. Green by this time was a free man, but he wasn't necessarily telling everyone that fact. And uh, a, another person in in the entourage said to the drunk man, leave him alone. He's a preacher. And the drunk man says, I don't care if he is a preacher and so forth. and so on. And finally, Green, who had not said anything, pushed the man down the hill. So that took nerve, uh, and then continued onto the hotel.
0: What do we know about his um, his end of life?
1: Uh, his end of life, uh, he he continued to to pastor these two churches, and uh, and this caused. Uh, I talked somewhat about the uh, controversies in both in each of these two churches that, that that brought about. Eventually, they they wanted maybe a preacher every Sunday. Instead of just every other Sunday, so a church in in the church in Paris split, and uh, just a block away on Eighth Street is the Zion Baptist Church, and that's the breakaway church. Uh, and Green helped them find a pastor, and you know he was helpful uh, to them. And the, just, that was in the summer of, summer of '84, just after his court triumph. Uh, same thing happened in Maceville at the same time. Uh, there was a little bit different. There was uh, a, a very uh, uh, ambitious uh, young black pastor uh, who came from Louisville who had actually fled a, a sexual uh, scandal there, but somehow the people in Maysville were not aware of that. Uh, and he was uh, uh, hired to, or not hired, but allowed to found his own church, called, the, which was called the Plymouth Baptist Church. And Plymouth is a very strange name to attach to a church in Kentucky, but it was actually uh, subvented by uh churches in massachusetts so that, that that explains that and so uh there's interesting things that happened in the conflict between the two churches in maysville uh green therefore you know had had the weather some trials uh but but he persisted you know with the flock that remained faithful to him uh and there was agitation toward the end of his life uh about the separate coach act which was passed by the state legislature to finally bring segregation uh, by separate coaches in the car. And the trains uh, were opposed to that because they didn't want to have to spend more money to buy more coaches than they needed. And I have a whole chapter about how the story that we are told uh, is false uh, somewhat uh, about how the Separate Coach Act came about. It was based on a uh, an incident that in fact did not happen the way that the newspapers said it happened. So hmm. that was a nice discursus.
0: Interesting uh, story, the, the historic life of uh, Elisha Green uh, from uh, Dr. Uh, Runyon. Uh, that is uh, our uh, guest today on our Think Humanities podcast, uh, Ralph um, Randolph Paul Runyon, who uh, joins us today from Paris, Kentucky. And there is another a story that we're going to ask him to give us a brief outline of from an earlier book uh, he wrote. Uh, that is uh, based in Lexington. But first, we're going to hear from our good friends uh, at Spalding University and their wonderful graduate writing course, uh, the Senior G- Jeter Naslin, uh, Karen Mann, uh, graduate school of writing um, school. And we'll be right back after this. Spalding University's low residency MFA in creative writing offers one-on-one faculty attention in a supportive literary community, study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, or writing for TV, screen, and stage. Stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week long residencies or travel on short term study abroad. Flexible scheduling and affordable tuition put a top tier MFA in reach. Learn more at slash MFA or email School of Writing. That's edu, We're back uh, with our podcast guest, uh, Randolph Paul Runyon, who is a member of our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau with uh, the main emphasis in the early part of the podcast was on his his book uh, published in uh, 22, the fall of 22 by the University Press of Kentucky Uh, on uh, the subject matter was Elijah Green, a fascinating story uh, that all Kentuckians should know. In an earlier book he wrote uh, on the Mintels um, of uh, Lexington fame, Mintel Park, if you've been by there, but there's a story behind the story, and it also uh, not only includes uh, Mrs. Mintel, but also uh, a woman by the name of Lincoln, Mary Todd Lincoln. We all are familiar with with um, uh, Abraham Lincoln's wife. So if you could, uh, Dr. Runyon, uh, give us just a kind of a brief uh, sketch outline, and then maybe we can entice some people to have you come and visit them and talk about this uh, in front of their group.
1: The connection between Charlotte Mantel, who uh, was born in Paris, France, uh, not the other Paris, uh, and with her husband uh, moved to Lexington in 1898, Uh, is interesting because beginning in 1820, she opened a school for young ladies. Uh, Some of the courses were in French. She certainly taught French and sometimes taught them in French. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln said uh, in a letter uh, when she was the wife of Abraham Lincoln and living in the White House that my early childhood was spent in a boarding school. And that was particularly this boarding school uh, and she needn't have boarded there because she lived just uh, the other side of town uh but it was after the death of her mother and she didn't get along with her stepmother very well so to flee that uh, uh that that problem she actually adopted Charlotte Mantel as a as her second stepmother
0: and how uh, long was she there with uh, with Charlotte Mante uh, about three or four years mm-hmm. like uh, from
1: 1832 to 36 or
0: so. But the real story is not only about uh, Mary Todd, it is uh, the, the life of and the um, uh, character of, um, uh, of Charlotte Mintel.
1: Yes, and, and her husband, Valdemar, uh, who was also French. Uh, they uh, left about the time of the French Revolution. Uh, they were born in Paris. They had begun a love affair in, uh, before they got married. In fact, I discovered, to my great interest, because they are my ancestors, uh, that they had a love child <laughs> uh, that, that, that died. But before they married, uh, they lived in the same apartment building. Uh, Voldemar's father was was very well known as a geographer and an academician. He was a member of the French Academy, the French Institute. Uh, Charlotte uh, was probably more intelligent than her husband. Uh, her husband was good looking, but but she was smart. Uh, They uh, were living before Lexington in Gallup which is this town of 500 French people in southeast Ohio, right on the river, uh, Ohio River, uh, and uh, in the midst of the Indians. But the Indians liked the French, and this was true throughout the Midwest, because the French knew how to deal with Indians. They were nice. They adopted their language, they adopted their food, they traded with them. Where the, the the Anglo-Saxons were aggressive against the Indians and the Indians did not appreciate that. Uh, but it was hard in Gallipolis that they were on the edge of starvation. They were there for a couple of years in the 1790s. Uh, then they moved to Washington, Kentucky, which is now part of Maysville for a year or two. And then they moved to Lexington in 1798. And they, they had a hard time surviving because they didn't have any guaranteed income. Valdemar uh, tried various trades. Eventually, he became a commission merchant, too, like John Porter Dobbins in Maysville. Uh, uh, and the school was an effort to, to make money, and it finally succeeded. Uh, and Charlotte Mantel had many stories to tell about how she fled the French Revolution uh, with a blunderbuss with had a bayonet on it. And I have a picture of that uh, in, in the book.
0: And. Uh, tell us uh, very briefly, she uh, was infamous, uh, according to, to your research and your writing, uh, for for taking long walks uh, in Lexington, the streets of Lexington, and she she walked and read a book at the same time? Yes, she, she,
1: she had a book in her hand always as she was walking, uh, and it's some distance out now the Richmond Road to where she lived, which was just across the street from Ashland, the, the 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 estate of Henry Clay. So that's a mile and a half or two miles. And, and she was constantly walking. She she never rode. She never, you know, drove, never rode in the carriage hardly. Uh, actually, uh, uh, history repeats itself because now I, as her great, 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 great grandson, am accused of the same thing in Paris, Kentucky. <laughs> but I say, oh, you're the guy's always walking around. Except instead of reading a book, I listen to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So there are not other walkers in uh, in Paris?
1: No. And it's very hard because people park on the sidewalks. <laughs> Sometimes you have to walk in the street to get around the parked cars.
0: Oh, goodness. Well, uh, interesting story and, and uh, uh, an interesting Speakers Bureau member. Uh, you've been listening to Randolph Paul Runyon. Uh, Dr. Runyon uh, is now a, um, uh, a Kentuckian, uh, not only by, by birth, but now settling back in to our uh, wonderful bluegrass, and uh, uh, we're glad that you're you're back in the state, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll uh, meet in person someday, and uh, uh, you will, I'm sure, continue to, I'll bet you you've got a project or two you're working on right now.
1: I do. I've just finished a book on Sally Ward of Louisville, Belle of Kentucky. She was she was very beautiful uh, people uh almost bowed down to her in the street because of her beauty uh people uh, farmers named their offs their most beautiful goat calf or horse after her but uh she she was very wealthy uh she rode her horse through the market house in Louisville that caused a scandal uh knocking you know the vegetables over uh very careless of her.
0: Well, thank you, sir, for being with us. Uh, We appreciate it. Once again, uh, if you're interested in having uh, Dr. Runyon uh, join you and your group, uh, KYHumanities.org, you can uh, contact him directly. If you need some help at all, let us know. Uh, Thank you, sir, for joining us on Think Humanities podcast.
1: You're welcome, and thank you.
0: Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.